Ben Appel, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Will you just tell our listeners one or two sentences about yourself, and then we'll expand on those a lot? Sure. So I'm a writer in New York. I am a gay man. Um, I have a book coming out hopefully next year. It's a memoir. Uh, tentatively titled Cis White Gay, uh, The Making of a Gender Heretic. And um, yeah, that's what my kind of beat is, if you will. And that's what that's who I am. So we were going to talk about becoming gender heretics, which uh, has happened to both of us. But you have a particularly interesting road you took to gender heresy and i'm wondering i'm wondering if we can go go way back to your childhood go a deeper. little bit because i think that makes what happens later so much more resonant yeah sure i you know i can tell you a little bit you know i grew up in a fundamentalist christian community uh it could be you know you could call it a cult uh, it was a, a, a charismatic renewal community is what they called it, a Catholic charismatic renewal community or a covenant community near Baltimore. Um, just to give you a kind of idea, you know, the, the female leadership, they were called handmaids or handmaidens. The, the male leaders were called coordinators. And of course, the men were at the very top, the tippy top. My father was one of those coordinators. My mother was a... Uh, she never was named handmaid, uh, which, you know, much to her chagrin, she didn't um, earn that title, but she was part of the, the leadership, um, something called a district head, um, who were, you know, the women just beneath the handmaids. Um, and, you know, we all lived in the same area. Uh, we weren't on a commune or anything, um, although the community did start out uh, with a kind of core group of, of young 20-somethings and I guess 30-somethings living on a big farm north of Baltimore, but um, in a few houses with other members kind of scattered about in the, in the area, uh, in other apartments and so forth. But, um, you know, when they got bigger and started to grow and started to match up and have families, they all kind of prayed and said, where, do, where, should, we, where should we go, Lord? And the Lord said, Catonsville, Maryland, um <laughs> near Baltimore <laughs> where uh you know so they migrated you know 20 minutes down the interstate and uh kind of settled in this you know few square mile uh, uh neighborhood and you know started a tiny school and it was very tight knit community I went to that school my siblings and I did and it started out as this kind of like hippie reformed hippie free loving jesus's love and mercy and grace um kind of in the 70s this out of this kind of post 60s drug haze um and then it got linked up with a broader uh, uh really fundamentalist movement um in the 80s the leadership did um that kind of was born kind of started out of ann arbor michigan and in the midwest uh a, a group of covenant communities and these two guys that we're really heading up this new kind of blueprint for living for, for Christian um, people. Um, and so are the leadership is particularly one leader. 
kind of went and got indoctrinated with all of this stuff in Michigan and in that area and then brought those ideas back to the community in the early 80s where it was really hardcore men's and women's roles. Um, you know, women were submissive to their husbands, uh, you know, very just fundamentalist, a lot of dogma um, and things really began to change. And so with my family and my mother, who was the one that would initially wanted to join the community at the beginning in the in the 70s, when her and my father were engaged to be married, she ended up being the one to want to leave because she was like, screw this. This is crazy. She would, you know, they were my, my parents were having issues in their marriage. And, um, you know, it was just a uh, she hadn't signed up for this. This isn't what she signed up for. Um, she was meant to be quiet and submissive, never be angry, never to, you know, just keep her mouth shut, et cetera. And it also was just a total culture of shame, uh, shame, mm. purity policing, um, group think. Uh, it, it did get investigated by the Catholic Archdiocese after former members came forward and wrote letters and saying, you know, this community that claims to be part of the Catholic, you know, church or at least representative of it is 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 a cult and it's functioning as a cult and it's you know teaching heretical stuff and it's pulling people away from the church etc you know there were there was money involved you know people would pay tithes every month and people started getting disgruntled about where's this money going um especially after they sold that farm or that commune um uh that they had that a lot of the core members had lived on at the beginning and they made a pretty penny for that so um you know, there was a lot of, and, and it was uh, a Baltimore Magazine article was was an expose was was published called "The Cult Next Door," about this big uh, this big controversy in in small town, you know, suburban Baltimore. So my mom uh, wanted to leave; she wanted to get out. And so when I was twelve, the summer after my sixth grade year. Um, you know, they said, you know, let's get out of here. My dad was like, all right, whatever. He was just kind of along for the ride in a lot of ways, even though he did earn a leadership position there. He was just, he was, he had earned that position because he was this established, you know, lawyer. He was kind of, you know, this educated man. So they really kind of latched onto that and thought this guy can really help build this community. And so he was more of kind of coming at it from a business lens, not necessarily a, a, a theological lens. He wasn't this really devout, hardcore, um, crazy for Jesus uh, guy. He just said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll help. So we left very abruptly. And that essentially meant that we were excommunicated. We were really pushed out all of the ties of with all the kids that I had known since infancy, or since I was a little kid that were like siblings to me, all those ties were essentially severed. And, uh, you know, all the teachers who were the mentors to me, who prayed over me on a daily basis, they were all gone. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I went to public school and I'll speed this up because, wow, this is getting really lengthy. Um, but anyway, you know, so I left the school, went to public school. I was an effeminate kid. I was a gay kid. I was very, very effeminate, just my disposition I, I look back at home videos of myself and I was just a girly, girly kid. Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't really made aware of that in the community because it was so tight knit and small. There wasn't necessarily an in crowd. We were all just soldiers for Christ, you know? And when I left was when 
I was made uh, I was made very aware by my new peers in my new public school and and people in the neighborhood and so on when we moved to a different area that oh you're you know you are there's something wrong with you you know are you a boy or a girl are you gay etc and so it was a tumultuous time just because you know I again I had learned all about the evils of homosexuality and what that was um, so recently in, in, in this community, um, and even in the sixth grade Bible class, and then to be, you know, ripped out of that and, and placed in a, in a, in a new world, an entirely new world. Um, and then to be told that I am one of those things was, was extremely traumatic. Um, and, and, you know, it was, it was a tough time. How did it work for you to be an effeminate gay boy in a community that imposed strict gender roles onto its members. Right. Why weren't why weren't you subject to those rules and roles? Well, so I was. We were kids, you know. So we weren't. We weren't. Um, you know, that's a good question. I mean, things were segregated. You know, the boys took rocketry classes and the girls took home ec. So that's that's how they would divide us. The girls would go to the the, the head handmaid's house for home ec. And they would like learn how to make chocolates and cook and things like that. And then our algebra math teacher would take the boys and take us to show us how to build rockets and launch rockets in a local field. Um, so there was that segregation there. Um, but again, there was only one girl in my grade, <laughs> three boys, you know, so it wasn't so much like, uh, hmm. But I was so young and looking back in retrospect, I was just a good, sweet kid that loved Jesus and that, that, that abided by all of the rules that I needed to. So no one was saying necessarily, you need to be more butch and act more like a boy. I mean, I was just this, I was kind of a genderless kid. It wasn't like, it was just this, I didn't even think about it. I was just fundamentally myself. And, you know, when I say that I was girly, that doesn't mean I wasn't athletic. I was, you know, I was very athletic. I was a very, very good athlete. I also was just in my presentation. I was, you know, swishy, very swishy. I loved the arts. I loved acting, you know, and I also had two older sisters that were influential in my life. So, you know, um, there was that as well, but um, I know that if I would have stuck around in that community, it would have come later that that really sharp distinction between men's and women's roles, because, you know, I eventually probably would have married a woman and there would have been that that um, all of those rules and those lessons laid out. Was was the church was the community always anti-gay or was it only when it went from, you know, independent cult to corporate cult? Right. That changed? You know, it, it, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that like, if you think about your Jerry Falwell, you think about your Christian right, your moral majority. I mean, the folks in, in this community that I belong to were reading Focus on the Family. They were reading, that's that was the dogma. Anita Bryant, the Save Our Children campaign, you know, campaigning against gays, being able to teach, you know, be teachers in schools and campaigning against, against anti-discrimination legislation throughout the country, et cetera. That was the, that was the, um, 
you know, to them, gays were pedophiles, they were sodomites, they were evil, they were dangerous to children, they were trying to recruit children, um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so that was where it, prior to, I can't imagine that there was necessarily so much focus on it, but I, that probably came with it becoming more, more dogmatic um, that that really started. But I will say that, you know, in retrospect, looking back, you asked me about like enforcing gender roles, the way that it kind of presented itself with the parents and the older people was a general almost suspicion of me when I was young. That was what I remember. I remember thinking that, you know, when I would go to my friend's houses that their parents would kind of think of me as almost kind of ridiculous in a way that there was just this just a general suspicion of me. And I kind of realized looking back that I was just a really, really girly kid. And they probably knew that I was going to be gay. And, you know, who knew what kind of, um, you know, influence I could have on, on their own kids. I mean, that's kind of only what I can guess about it. But um, I do remember that in retrospect. How did your parents respond to your innate femininity? If we you know, my dad... That? My dad, before he passed, he insisted, he said, I don't remember that. I don't remember you ever being really effeminate. And, you know, and he kind of, he kind of framed it in that very, you know, kind of, in a way, a regressive gender, gender stereotypical fashion. He said, oh, but you were so athletic, you know, or, but so yeah. were my sister, you know, um, they were very athletic as well, um, you know, or, or, or whatnot. My mom, on the other hand, she knew from when I was so young that I was likely going to be gay and she says she just remembers that you know she didn't really worry about it so much to be honest she just thought if that's who he is that's who he is and I'll love him and that'll be you know and you know how it's going to be um and there was never any thought in her mind to like try to change me or make me something that I wasn't. She was she was pretty accepting of it, but she kind of knew deep down that this was likely, you know, going to be my future. Um, and, you know, personally, internally, she did perhaps battle with it for a while, especially when I was in my teenage years, my late teens, when I did come out, thinking about, oh, well, what caused this? You know, how much was was it nurture? You know, was it your father being a little, you know, was it my decision to divorce your father? You know, she had mm -hmm. a lot of guilt surrounding that when they split up, um, that kind of thing. Is this God's plan for you? Um, you know, and, and then, you know, her, her ideals uh, about that started to loosen and change and, and kind of evolve over time. Did she continue to have a relationship with Jesus or God? Mm -hmm after she left the community? Yeah, so my mother was, you know, something that she and I share, we're very similar. And my response to that after we left and kind of being tormented and bullied in school, my parents split up, all of these things, I developed OCD in the form of scrupulosity. So I would stay up all night praying for forgiveness because I was convinced that I was bad and all these bad things were happening because of me. And that if I could just repent enough 
and I could get back on God's good side, then these bad things wouldn't continue to happen. It became a method of control, uh, an attempt to control things. So um, I became obsessed with my moral fiber and every little thing I did wrong, every mistake I made um, became, uh, was huge. Uh, I, I forgot to hang up my bath towel. I didn't wash the, the dishes. I thought a negative thought about uh, someone's appearance. I, you know, it was, it was obsessive. And years later, you know, I discovered that my mom had that same disposition when she was a young girl, um, that she, you know, was indoctrinated by these, you know, very hard, you know, nuns in her Catholic school about, um, and, you know, her father and her brothers were Jewish and, and her mother was Catholic. And so she was taught, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. And she worried about her dad and her brothers. And she just developed, she had this very sensitive kind of um, morally scrupulous nature too. Um, and so uh, uh, when she found the community in the seventies and it was not part of a church, but this group of young people who, again, their message was simply, you know, just this distilled Christian message of, God loves, God forgives, everyone's welcome, Jesus loves you, et cetera. This kind of very, again, this new agey hippie kind of message about it was what really attracted her. Um, and so, you know, when it got to be so dogmatic after we left, yes, she carried some of that dogma with her, but really it kind of fell away. What remained was, again, that just desire for some kind of belief in a God that was merciful and forgiving. Um, and that's kind of what she still practices today and what she stays connected with. Yeah. So you had this experience of living in a bubble early, being generally accepted, not necessarily even aware of how different you were or that there was one right way to be, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, and then, and then in middle school, as your parents divorce, you go to a new school and get relentlessly bullied mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about what you learned about yourself and about gender and sexuality and life during mm -hmm. that miserable time well you look when i my response to that was to as a survival tactic as a coping mechanism this was just a it was it was instinctual again it wasn't some strategy that i thought out it was instinctual I defeminized myself. I changed my gait, you know, the way I walked, I cut my hair, I changed my wardrobe, I changed my interest, I deepened my voice. I refused to say certain words because some words that I said sounded, you know, like the like I very gay. Um like what? You know, what words sound gay sound gay? I remember one incident where I said to a couple kids, like, oh, I'm so pissed. And the way I must have said pissed. You know, mm -hmm. had that girl, that gay, that gay list. Although gays don't really have lists, but there's, you know, that kind of gay whatever inflection. Cadence, and, yeah. And uh, and that got me in trouble. Um, you know, so I really, and I wrote an essay about this a long time ago, but like I really, my my spirit was essentially crushed. I mean, mm. I. I, my, I was at, I was just very, became very atrophied. I couldn't, I was so self constantly self scanning, um, you know, uh, just became a chameleon, 
um, you know, and, and to be, you know, what other people needed me to be. And so, you know, I will say to, you know, and I, I think some of the bravest people are the people that just to kind of defy all that. I've always thought that, you know, just the super, super femme, you know, guys who can't turn it off, you know, they can't turn it off, you know, and the super, super butch girls who grow up and they just, they don't, you know, I think that that's like, you know, because for me, I, I guess I didn't have the, the gumption to do that. I didn't even, you know, I was too afraid. I, the implications were so big, you know, it was, these kids were telling me that I was something that was fundamentally evil that I had was, had learned was fundamentally evil from the people that I trusted the most in the world who, again, I had just been ripped away from. So there, the stakes were so high. Um, I could not be what these kids were saying I was, I could not, you know, um, and so, uh, you know, I, I was just so afraid that I, that I did defeminize myself, but that was part of what really launched me into really having an issue with this new, you know, gender movement and the, the, the activists, the LGBTQIA plus community, when I really encountered it at Columbia and at other activist organizations that I got involved with in New York, um, that was when I really became, because I saw this, this you know, cis, gay, this as used as a slur um, mm -hmm. to, you know, that suddenly I was being labeled this, this identity that I had never given myself that I didn't ask for, that I, you know, and to be almost ridiculed or, or condemned or to be seen as somehow regressive for, for being a gender conforming person. Um, <laughs> the you know, irony. When, I would, the irony of it when, you know, I, I thought, well, I was bullied, you know, I was, um, you know, now it's resolved itself. I don't know how much of how I present is still, you know, the masculine way that I present or the feminine way that wh however I present is so uh, uh, devolves from that experience, you know, how much is, of my masculinity is based on the fear of being seen as effeminate um you know or have I just grown up and you know I went through puberty and I became a man and I've just evolved and grown and as a result of my life experiences this is how I behave and act but you know to be kind of labeled as this one thing you are a cis gay and and to just deny all of the internal complexity of how I view life and ideas and sexuality and gender and just to distill it down. It's very insulting. Um, and, well, wait, and, we, I want to get into how that happened, but I think yeah. before that, I want to know how you realized that you were the thing that you uh, absolutely could not be. Yeah. I and think then, and then how that became, how you came to terms with that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it was, I was maybe 12, 13. And when I became a sexual being, you know, when I became, when I started, you know, when I, but prior to that in, in the community, I had crushes. My first crush was Elijah Wood when I was like nine or 10. I saw a B movie with him in it called North and I was obsessed. 
you know? Um, but I wasn't a sexually mature kid, you know? Um, when I, when I started to sexually mature, when I was 12, 13 and I started to, you know, I had self pleasured, you know, prior to this. Um, but when I started to attach whatever I was thinking about to a sex of a person, when I started to realize that. I think it's called male... fantasizing perhaps. Right. Yes. When I was fantasizing <laughs> about my male peers, you know, that was when I started to realize, oh, fuck, you know, uh, this is, this ain't good. And, um, you know, I, I was petrified. I mean, Lisa, I was mentally unwell. And so when I, at this time, and I, and I was, look, I was a good kid. I got good grades. I excelled, you know, I still played, but I was a mess. I had this OCD and I, I was, I started drinking when I was, when I was 12, 13, I drank alone. You know, I, I had to self-medicate. I needed something to anesthetize this anxiety, crippling anxiety. And, um, and then when I was 16, I started working at this restaurant and I, uh, you know, some folks that I worked with smoked pot and I discovered pot. And that was my life, the life-saving because it, it, it was interesting because it, one allowed me to sleep. It calmed the OCD, you know, it, at least at the beginning. And it also allowed me to detach from my thoughts a little bit that were so scary. My natural thoughts, like whether it was a thought about a man or a thought about questioning dogma, any kind of honest thought that I had running through my mind that I was so quick to say, oh, God, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, God, forgive me, Lord, forgive me. It allowed me to detach from that in a little way, in a way mm -hmm. it loosened it. So I was able to kind of watch the thoughts kind of mm -hmm. more rather than emotionally respond to them and tense up. It's like a, a shortcut to meditation. Yeah. 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 Way, yeah. It was. And, uh, and so I, at that time, it allowed me to kind of be a little bit more like, oh, I'm gay, you know? And I wrote about it in my journal. And then I told a couple really close girlfriends, I think I'm interested in guys too, you know, besides what, cause you know, that's kind of what a lot of folks do. Like you come out as bi and then you're like, fuck it, I'm gay, you know? Um, <laughs> but uh, that was what really, you know, where it really started. It was just something I could not deny. I always knew in my bones, you know? Um, it really started out with, in retrospect, and I think this is really accurate, is that I always say, like, it was more like I knew initially that I wasn't responding to the stimuli that other boys were responding to. What's wrong with me? Like, when we would look at magazines of girls and this and that, and I would kind of stare at these pictures and think, like, you know, like, almost like those magic eyes. Remember those magic eyes where you would stare at them and you would, it would, like, like, I would stare at them, we're expecting, like, it to do something, you know, <laughs> like these Sports Illustrated or whatever it was. You kind of realize what you're not into before you realize, oh, that's why, you know, <laughs> this is what I'm into, you know. And, uh, and so that, you know, so when I was 16, 17, 18, that was when it was just really, um, okay, yeah, this is who I am. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, it wasn't just a happy ending after that because I got into heavier drugs and I became a full-fledged drug addict and alcoholic um, who needed to arrest that in my early 20s. So that, you know, led to psych wards and, 
and all kinds of stuff. It didn't end there. I wasn't like, oh, wow, you know, I'm gay and I'm liberated. It was a, it was a dark journey. That Do you, was some, was some of that journey from a lack of self-acceptance or was it something else? Lack, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just a fear about who I was. I, I did, of course, yeah, I absolutely had a difficult time accepting myself because I could not, I had no idea how to reconcile the hellfire and brimstone, you know, doctrine of, of my childhood with, with who I was. I did not, you know, I was indoctrinated. I was essentially, pro I was programmed to believe these things about myself and about, and to, to view life in a way from, from, from childhood, from, you know, toddlerhood, essentially, you know, and so it was like trying to erase my hard drive and rewrite it. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. It would come years later, um, you know, in a kind of a deprogramming, essentially, um, an evolution that was like a kind of slow deprogramming over time, but then eventually it involved more uh, intensive, literally trauma therapy to hmm. really attack all of that. Well, I'm thinking about some things you said and how they actually mirror the language of some of the ideology and activism. We're going to talk about um, how we became heretics because of the way we talk about that stuff. But I'm thinking like you're 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 telling a story about how um, you were unable to be your authentic self. Let's use that term. And how that led to shame and drug abuse and how it just took a very, very long time to be able to accept your authentic self in part because the culture, the cultures that you had grown up in, two very different ones, but equally intolerant, one tolerant of gender, gender nonconformity to a certain extent, but intolerant of homosexuality, the other intolerant of both. Um, and so those uh, cultural prohibitions contributed to this kind of mental health collapse. That is what a lot of young people are saying about gender and gender identity and being transgender. They're saying, I just want to be my authentic self. And the, it's the culture that's imposing this gender binary on me that's intolerant why is that why is your story different than theirs it's a really good mind? question and that's a good question and in my mind and this is where I started to I guess become heretical where I started to divert from what modern what I saw were kind of approaches to uh, a liberation of sorts for people like me was that as I grew up I, I did get involved in gay activism I and and whatever I thought boys who are gender nonconforming, who are, you know, who are effeminate and who turn out to be gay, they should be able to be accepted that we should have awareness so that other kids are like, he's just a, a girly or, you know, gay. There's nothing wrong with that. I should, I, what, what it is now is the rush to, pathologize it or to or to to medicalize it to treat it as a, a condition that often results in 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 medicalization or 
it's a reorganization of like, uh, you know, with gender identity ideology and this kind of idea that these traits that I had, these effeminate traits could have been interpreted as, oh, they mean I'm a girl, not a boy. When I am a boy, I am a male, you know, to me, I just thought, well, that's just so regressive, you know, men and effeminate men are just a natural variation of the male sex. They're a, 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 a minority and perhaps, you know, as kids, a, a distinct, a very, maybe even a small minority, what, 4%, who knows, a small minority, but they are a natural variation of the male sex. That doesn't make them females. It doesn't make them women or girls because they're behaving in these stereotypically girly ways. That's madness to me. And that's a decade step leaps back backwards um, into what we're attempting to achieve. I thought, you know, I, I thought when I was when I first I thought, yes, like boys should be if they're naturally effeminate kids and Again, they'll most likely to grow up to be gay. Everybody knows this. Everybody has known this, you know. Um, then we should be able to support them and have some awareness and, and to kind of keep an eye, you know, if we're going to try to improve things for kids, to, to, to support them in a way that says, great, you're different. That's awesome. You know, you're just proof that there's no one way to be a boy and there's no one way to be a girl. And this is fantastic. Look, I've said like, why, what, why did we stop enrolling gay boys or feminine boys in art classes and drama clubs where they're going to meet other kids like them rather than enrolling them at gender clinics, you know, like when did we, <laughs> can we go back to not taking them to a doctor and taking them to some drama geek clubs where they're going to be able to, flourish with you know mostly likely people of the opposite sex but other boys too who find you know who love that that world you know um and if they're also athletic then they can you know participate in that too but um it, it was just a total diversion from what I thought was going to be this natural progression of of making things better for gay people and lesbian people. I remember meeting some people who had a very, very effeminate gay boy who did have some distress, some psychological distress that I we didn't go into what that looked like. And they did bring him to a gender clinic and for, forgive the the misgendering, but um, but anyway, I believe he changed his pronouns to they, them. And um, this brought psychological relief. The, the taxonomy of non-binary that brought psychological relief. And, but I think most importantly, it changed people's expectations so that the kid could wear princess dresses and have whatever mannerisms he naturally had. And it provided space for that. And... I, I'm sensitive to that, um, but I'm also aware that those kind of interventions are very powerful and, and often lead to medicalization. And so they're, they are perceived as progressive, but people like you and I, who are extremely tolerant of gender nonconformity, 
I think we want to create a world where it's okay if you need a name, maybe if you, we accept it as a natural variation of, of boyhood and girlhood. I guess if somebody needs a special name for it, it's fine. But the goal is for the kid to not be distressed about it and for the society to not be distressed about it and to not kick them out of their sex category because they're not performing gender as we think is typical for that sex category. So I'm just wondering, in lieu of going to the gender clinic and getting a new category name and new pronouns, how else do we allow for naturally gender non-conforming kids to strip themselves of the expectations that they've been saddled with by adults and by our culture? I mean, I honestly, I thought we were getting there before, I thought we were on our way before gender identity ideology took hold in what, 26, I mean, I started to see it in like 2017. I thought we were on our way. I was a hairstylist in my past life for many years. And I went, you know, in the area that I kind of spent my teenage years. And I, so I obviously had developed relationships with women and men, you know, of, of all walks of life, all political affiliations, et cetera, but who lived in that area and who had kids who attended the same schools I did. And, you know, when the marriage equality issue came up and, um, you know, we were fighting for that in 2012 in Maryland. And I had a client whose kids went to the middle school where I was tormented. And her son, straight, popular with girls, et cetera, athletic, this little boy, you know, she said that he had said to her, like, mom, how are you going to vote on that bill? And she said, well, I'm going to vote for it. I think they should be able to marry. And he said, good for you, mom. You know, mm -hmm. and I thought, holy fuck. I mean, I can't imagine the, just the way the, the progress that we've made. And look, like a kid's support of marriage equality isn't necessarily a, a the you know whether or, you know doesn't measure how accepting kids are of gender nonconformity per se but to have kids in middle school understand and this was in a fairly I mean it was a it was a mixed bag as a purple state you know purple I mean they say Maryland's a blue state it's really a purple state and this was in a pretty conservative actually area borderline anyway this school specifically and so to have kids you know, kind of just accept, hey, there's there's going to be gay kids, there's going to be, and everybody kind of affiliates, even though gay can look like a lot of different things. You know, it can often be, you know, effeminate men and butch women. That's just how, that's how it is, you know, especially when you're kids, especially when you're kids. And, um, you know, but so also, thought, but also it could be, there are, it's less common with men, but there are feminine straight men and there are certainly masculine straight yeah. women. Yes. It happens. So, it, I mean, that's part of my goal is to get people to stop attaching so much meaning to childhood gender nonconformity and find it unremarkable ultimately. Exactly. And that's the thing. It's like, I and I'm with you because I thought the same same thing. I thought I can under I can really really empathize with people who are gender nonconforming that find themselves really struggling and feel liberated by suddenly being able to claim these new programs and this 
pronouns and this new identity, they, them, and saying you're non-binary and feeling like, oh, suddenly this gives me permission to behave and to express myself however I want. I can completely empathize with that. The only thing is, I think, well, fuck, that, that sucks because that isn't, that's kind of stalling us, I think. I think that that stalls us. I think that in a way, and I think this is how it is with a lot of progressive politics. There's a lot of times progressive thinks let's leap forward, leaps and bounds without acknowledging what the long-term consequences of this move is going to do and actually pushing us backwards. I think that there's this rush and I think that that's why I've become more sensitive to conservative or at least centrist but conservative views towards progress because I see how important acknowledging reality, always acknowledging facts and reality and also being seeing the broader picture and the bigger picture and seeing how yes this might liberate you individually but this fundamentally narrows the category of the categories of men and women yeah and you are reinforcing re-entrenching the very gender the rigid and often oppressive gender norms for gender non-conforming people or for anyone if you can argue that from for men and women you're fundamentally re-entrenching them with this with this practice, this ideology, or whatever you want to call it, this new, uh, whatever. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. <laughs> so okay, so Ben, you became a hairdresser. Mm-hmm. You're in a in a purple place, and um, and you did achieve a certain amount of liberation, I think, from your past. Um, and then what happened? How did you end up at Columbia and how did you end up realizing that you were a thing called a cis white gay, which was a bad thing? So it was 2012. So really what changed was in late 2011, I met my now husband and I fell in love with him. And before that, I thought, you know, marriage is an antiquated institution. Yes, I guess I want it legalized for same-sex marriage legalized for equality's sake, but, you know, I want nothing to do with that, you know, um, whatever. And then I met him and I thought, oh my God, I want to marry this guy. I have a hat in this, you know, I have a stake in this. I have a hat in the ring, you know, and, 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 and ironically or whatever, serendipitously in the Maryland state legislature months later, same-sex marriage passed um but with a contingent you know contingency that uh conservatives in the state would be able to if they collected enough signatures be able to put it on the november ballot for referendum so that that the maryland voters could overturn it if they wanted to they they put a contingency that it wouldn't go into effect until january 2013 after the 2012 election giving conservatives enough time to to overturn it and um so of course, conservatives collected enough signatures. I think like only 160,000 was required or something. So that year, you know, while I'm, I've fallen in love with this guy, we're planning this future. I want to marry him. I got involved with the, the, the equality campaign for, in Maryland, you know, and peripherally involved. I mean, I wasn't this like, you know, spearheading it by any means, but I was involved and I was certainly talking to people 
about this cause. Um, and then on election day, I electioneered for at the polls for um, what was called question six, you know, which was the question on the ballot about marriage equality. And I was convinced we were going to lose because I thought, you know, God hates gays, you know, and deep down, you know, the, all this old stuff, you know, mm. um, no happy that my life isn't going to be a happy one. Ultimately, people aren't going to, you know, like everything's against this cause and we won. And it was actually a huge sweep because for, there were four bills involving marriage equality that that November and all of them won in different states, Maryland, Maine, um, Washington, I think it was. And um, was it Minnesota or no, Wisconsin? I think there was like a anyway, all of us, all of them won. And it just fundamentally changed my perspective. It was a transformative experience for me. I thought I was complete. I felt it was of a religious experience in a lot of ways. I mean, I felt like, wow, the like the universe is not against me. You know, God is not. I mean, in a way, if I thought about it that way, God, the universe, whatever, is not working. That the majority of people, Maryland voters think that I should have the right it was such a and you know maybe it's an unfortunate thing that I had to be validated by the majority but it was a validating experience I felt le I felt more like I was a part of society you know I just felt immediately like I could walk a little bit taller um and so I thought I know what I want to do with my life. I mean, I had always thought about going back to school and finishing my college degree, which I had dropped out after a semester, you know, in 2001, before I became a hairstylist for, and by that time I was a hairstylist for like 10 years. And uh, I got involved. So anyway, some, right after this marriage equality campaign, there was, you know, with this Equality Maryland, they were also uh, campaigning for trans rights. There was a transgender rights legislation campaign of like an anti-discrimination law that they were campaigning for. So I thought, well, I, I wanted to keep chasing that feeling of winning for the marginalized queer people. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Or the mm -hmm. LGBT people. I wasn't really using the word queer at the time. This was in 20, um, beginning of 2013. So I, I, volunteered for this campaign. I went and spoke with senators and I said, this is why you need to pass this bill. You know, trans people should not be denied housing or jobs because simply because they're trans, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we got engaged. My husband and I got married in 2014. And all the while I'm just becoming more impassioned by equality and by fighting for, you know, my people you know mm -hmm. and, and uh so it was a couple months after we were married we were out to dinner on Christmas Eve and I said to my husband I want to go back to school I want to be a writer I want to be a journalist I want to be a human rights activist he said you just got to go for it so a couple weeks later I was enrolled at community college I went to community college part-time for a year while working full-time and during that at the beginning of that first semester I researched places in New York because I wanted to be in New York. My husband could work from home. So he's like, yeah, I'll go to New York. And I found this this at Columbia. They have as part of their university, one of their four their undergraduate schools is for non-traditional students. So people who had a break in their education. And I thought I want to go to Columbia. So I worked my ass off and I got, you know, great recommendations and I wrote a great essay and I got into Columbia. And um I uh, 
um, you know, my husband and I moved up to New York in late 2016 um, for me to start at Columbia in early 2017. So I was going to go there for like three and a half years to finish my undergraduate degree. And that was the, so I was thrilled. I mean, I could not believe my, my this opportunity that was, I thought, oh my God, one of the best universities I'm going to be in this. And it was right after Trump was elected. So I was like, mm -hmm. you know, obviously devastated by that win, his win. And I thought, oh my God, it's all going to come crumbling down because, you know, the, the strides that we had made during the Obama years really kind of paralleled my own, you know, uh, not to be grandiose about it, but just personally <laughs> in my own lived experience, if you will, uh -huh. you know, paralleled my, my, my own story with my husband and everything. And it was just such a, an exciting time. And so I thought, oh my God, this is all gonna, this is all gonna end. And, um, and I thought, well, at least I'm going to be going to be study at this university. I'm going to be in a, in a progressive bubble with like-minded folks who are, we're going to be kumbaya hashtag resist I'm going to be with other gay you know and I'm just going to be in my element and this is going to be amazing and I'm going to learn how to be the best activist and writer to really fight this this new administration and whatever whatever is coming down the pike and so we moved in and I went to Columbia and it was from my very first semester was when I started to encounter a little bit of like just a weirdness of, I mean, I may, may, I think the first kind of experience that I had that was just like, huh, maybe things aren't going to be as I thought they were, was when there was like this, you know, information session for people who wanted to get involved with LGBTQ groups on campus. And I thought, well, you know, this is the birthplace of 60s radicalism. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're going to yeah. be like, oh, we got this stuff on the agenda. We're going to be, you know, and here we're going to protest this and we're getting, act, you know, and I went and it was like, you know, people, you know, all about, you know, pronouns. And then they were, and, you know, and not just all about pronouns, but it was people who were, you know, uh, identifying as queer and, and, and then there was nothing on the agenda, but slumber parties where they were going to decorate posters for their rooms. There were toys there that, I mean, it was so jarring how infantile, hmm. and, I, and I don't want to say that to be like, oh, these people are just infantile. I don't mean that cruelly. I mean, just, there's no better, I just, I thought to myself, if this is the vanguard, if this is the front that's fighting for people like me, like this is, this is who's, who's going to be leading in the, I mean, we are in trouble. So these know? were these were like act LGBT activist groups on on campus, and this yeah, is it like, yeah, it was like the the groups that you would join um, to get involved with other with other LGBT people who naturally you would think would be you know getting involved in activism because that's you know or whatever what else I don't know, and it was more just about validating each other and making a safe space to again decorate posters and and it was a a a, a weird there was such a it was an extension of a, a childhood it was like um 
let's bring our childhood bedrooms to the university kind of thing. Um, well, it also sounds like the activism was very internally focused. It was, it was not so much let's make legislative or cultural change so much as um, let's focus on ourselves and our our own experiences. I mean, it, it, it sounds like it was representative of this. Well, I always think about that we don't spend nearly enough time or really any time examining the shift from thinking that gender is a, a set of expectations that people have of you based on your sex to it's a feeling that you have inside and that it's subjective. And it sounds like these were people who were sort of trained in the idea that your that your subjective reality needs to be respected by other people or else you've yeah. been pressed. Right. And validated. Like affirmed. validated, yeah. That other that you can't be valid unless other people say you are, which is um that's certainly the battle being waged, it seems. Um <laughs> I mean it it seems it seems um antithetical to making real change, especially the change you and I talk a lot about, which is making room for gender nonconformity, that if you make it about your subjective experience, you and, and you feel like you made change because somebody you feel like you made change because somebody used pronouns that you wanted them to you to use, but you but you didn't make more room in the culture for people who are different necessarily. Although I know it probably really feels like that to those people. Yeah, you're right. I mean, in a lot of ways, it did become a kind of a turn inward, a fundamentally kind of self-centered project, um, really tapping into that part that perhaps we all have of the kind of the narcissistic element, the self-centered kind of d desperate need for validation. Um, I mean, we could talk about that if you wanted. But, well, you know. I want to hear what I want to hear a little more about specifically sort of what happened to you since the idea, the mm -hmm. ultimate idea of us chatting was how you became a gender heretic. Yeah, well, and so 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 that was where I've really started to see it. But again, and it's difficult for me to you might have heard it was difficult for me to kind of put into words. It was just kind of the first inclination that, oh, OK, this is going to be different than I thought. You know, this isn't like hey, let's go, let's go advocate for our rights and for freedom from discrimination. This is more like, let's validate each other and break each other's hair, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so then. That sounds fun uh, too. It can be. Absolutely. Everybody needs that. <laughs> Everybody needs it, but that's not activism. That's self-care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, that's friendship. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's not activism. <laughs> um, so I, uh, landed so my first semester ended and I did some stuff you know like I wrote a piece about the stigmatization of of, of HIV positive gay men um, a long feature piece for Columbia Spectator um, and I wrote this piece uh, it was like a, a long research paper about the kind of history of the the of the anti-gay you know Christian right and how things have evolved and kind of how we've gotten to where we are today um, and then I turned that into an op-ed um, that was put on HuffPost. Um, and then I landed a, a internship at a very prominent LGBT 
activist organization in the city for the summer. And I was thrilled about that because I thought, okay, here is where I'm going to have the opportunity to really make a difference and to do what I came here to do. And that was where I really started to become where my heresy, where my, where the, the turning point was. And it was because this, what we talked about in terms of like, you know, how kind of non-binary and all of this stuff is kind of regressive, you know, like it's mm -hmm. actually, you know, all of the, and, and it was along those lines where I was like, this doesn't make sense. This is dehumanizing of trans people. For example, you know, with intersectionality and this kind of new, what I was becoming aware of very quickly, my first semester and then at this organization and the way that things were being talked about in policy and school and then in the classroom was that, and it, it became very clear to, clear to me very quickly. It was like, there's this hierarchy of disadvantage and, and there is an elevation almost like a canonization of the more marginalized you are, the more holy you are in a lot of ways, the more mm -hmm. good you are, fundamentally good, innately good, which again, the other people who are lower or higher on the rung, whichever way you want to look at it, because it's an inverted hierarchy, are bad, are evil. And also that um, you're immune to criticism. Mm -hmm. And you're immune to, let's say, defending your views. Um, and there was just this, I thought, this is fundamentally dehumanizing. I can understand there is a value to in looking at things through an intersectional lens. Absolutely. To take into account various uh, uh, aspects of one's identity and how it can affect their experience in life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera but to apply it as the sole lens through which to impl implement policy and, 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 and also just to, to view culture and enforce cultural norms. And it was like, this is detrimental to people's mental health, to well-being. that this does mm -hmm. nothing to empower individuals. This does nothing to empower, let's say black people. This does nothing to empower gay people. This does nothing to empower trans people. And I started to see that where it was like it, identity became the fundamental way to look at somebody that you weren't to look at anyone as an individual. You were to look at all of these identities that they that amassed that they that they were at any one time and really pull all of the kind of stereotypes or or about those specific identities and apply it to that person immediately and it was like what in the hell is going on I couldn't I I was I was that was where I was oh I was like oh fuck I need to keep my thoughts to myself because look I've been expunged from one fundamentalist community in the past and this is the community that I found solace in and I belong in this rat this progressive community whatever it is mm -hmm. my home is and so if I go against this, I'm going to be, and I saw what happened to people that spoke up, you know, I got my taste of it when I would just kind of say, oh, I don't know if that's, oh, and then it would just be this reaction that was like, oh, I've learned very quickly to keep my, you know, to, 
how dangerous it was to express dissent or my opinion about things that I just didn't think was really, you know, whatever, what we were really going for. Not that I have all the answers at all, but I just thought, you know, okay, I think this might deserve, need a little more and a little pushback. And um, it became fundamentally very clear um, at, on campus. And then also at this, this organization where I was with these other young folks and I just, these other interns who, of course, I'm in my thirties with Lisa. So of course yeah. they're a lot younger than me. And, and just the, the level of how much they were equating their identity with their fashion, with their haircuts, with their, it was, it was really bizarre um, how, how uh, self-centered they were and how awarded they were and mm -hmm. rewarded they were for adopting this, this stance. It was very weird. Um, and, and, you know, it was the very, this fundamentalist kind of view of things um, you know, uh, oh, she's a queer baiter. Oh, she's um, this. Oh, she doesn't know queer culture. Oh, it was a very much like just this policing atmosphere of, you know, it, it was purity policing 101. Um, and I started to see kind of the underbelly of what was going on. And that was when I first started hearing the word cisgender and the word cis and it being used as a slur. And, you know, it was, it was like, and I've said this before, it's like the kid, they started calling me cis in precisely the same cadence, the same way that the kids in seventh grade called me fag. It was no different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I was busy as an intern because I was on the news and rapid response team. So I was, there was a lot coming out of the white house at once the trans military ban and then in legislatures around the country there was the bathroom bills and all this stuff i was doing a lot of research and i was working really hard for this organization the folks around me some of them were a lot of them were not and so they would kiki and you know be on their instagrams and obsessing about themselves and meanwhile i'm you know i'm pretty active in kind of trying to you know get something moving here and um and it really turned me off yeah i thought uh, you know, and it, so being a heretic, a gender heretic, and then also I became a heretic about activist organizations and activism, Lisa. I mean, like mm -hmm. Wesley Yang talks about the activist class, and I see that there is this, with a lot of activist organizations, there's a bottom line. They are beholden to donors. They have a laser focus on end goals where they ignore nuance entirely. They have no time for nuance, no time for criticism. It's about censorship. It's about shutting down opposing arguments, regardless of where those opposing arguments are coming from, whether they're just, you know, there needs to be a conversation rather than some kind of boycott. I mean, it was really, it was where my perspective about all of that really started to change. And, um, and I just started to see like these highly privileged kids are, now, some of them are naturally gender nonconforming, but to me, I just thought a lot of these people that are identifying into these communities and in this community and as queer and as trans or as not non-binary or whatever are 
they're looking at what works. They're, they're, they're utilizing the system. They're doing what any, I guess anybody would do, which is this will earn me cultural cachet. Mm -hmm. Um, This will, this will, I don't want to be evil. I don't want to be bad. I don't want to be just another cis white, whatever. Um, This will, this will make me um, good in the eyes of the church. And um, so of course they're going to, they're going to latch on to that. And it would, it, it became fun. It became abundantly clear to me from the beginning. It wasn't really hard to figure out, but it was hard to talk about. So I would stuff all of these ideas and these feelings and these thoughts down. And I would, um, I would just swallow them. And I became, you know, really, really depressed for mm. a good portion of the time that I was at Columbia. I actually became suicidal for the first time since I was like 19. Um, and I mean, suicidal. Um, and, uh, you know, so things, it it was, it was just the slow progression of kind of, of, of this awareness of like, wow, there, there's something really going on here. Um, and then I, I, I ended up getting to such a low place. Now, mind you, I'm excelling academically, but I got to such a low place mentally that I had to do, um, intensive trauma therapy. Um, and I was seeing the connects between the, the, the cult that I had grown up with and the f- culture that I was encountering in these activist spaces in Columbia. I knew that there was, there was, it was this, it was fundamentally the same thing. And what this time and on campus and in these, and, and it, it, it re-triggered that old OCD. Suddenly mm-hmm. I'm praying, I'm, I'm having these heretical thoughts and then I'm saying, God, forgive me, or I'm doing these compulsive behaviors in which I'm f- mentally flagellating myself for thinking, quote unquote, bad thoughts about mm. everything or, or heretical thoughts about everything that I'm supposed to believe and swallow as a good, as a good gay or queer progressive. And um, I ended up having a series of panic attacks Again, I was suicidal and years before my good friend who I knew since my early twenties had recommended a, a form of trauma therapy called EMDR, mm-hmm. which is like eye movement, rapid desensitization, something like that. Um, and uh, I signed, found this therapist, signed up for it. And I actually did it for a year while I was at Columbia. And it really, it, it really was a lifesaver for me because it just allowed me to realize wow, there is all of this dogma that I'm fighting against, but that I'm terrified to fight against. I'm swallowing all of this dissent. And, and so I had to go back into my history and look at my time in that community and then the years after and really confront all of this programming, this fundamentalist religious programming and unroot all of that which allowed me to unroot myself from this new fundamentalist religious programming that pretty much we're all being programmed with in one way or another, but in which I was, I was, uh, you know, that, you know, kind of being force fed and, and that was where, um, and then I, you know, to zoom forward, I, I did a, a semester at an MFA program because I thought, well, I'm going to do this MFA program. I'm going to try to write a memoir, get the, you know, and, the the culture that I encountered there it was a Midwestern university was perhaps even worse 
than Columbia. Um, this was the summer, the, uh, the first semester was after the summer of 2020. And you know how cataclysmic that summer was yeah. and that year. And um, anyway, you know, at the end of my first semester, I wrote a problematic piece that I published on my Substack. And someone in the program read it and circulated it around the program. And, uh, you know, DEI was called, workshops were canceled. And that piece was called The New Homophobia. It was um, The New Homophobia in Higher Education. And it was about, about what I was encountering. Mm. Um, and and I, I, I left the program. I thought, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't be in this cohort. I was the only, the man, only man in the cohort. Um, and it was, it was just a, it was a, it was a, an oppressive and just anti, just a toxic, toxic, um, atmosphere, um, that I shudder to even think about. And so I, I left, um, and, you know, I've been a heretic ever since. So is there no way forward besides excommunication or self-excommunication? Is there is there, I, I think about this because um, there are some people in our, in our cohort, and I think we're such a heterodox group that we can't turn into a cult, um, but who enjoy engaging with the orthodox leaders and, and poking at them um, and, and, and calling them out on things. I'm just kind of terrified of those people and, and I'm, and I even have a hard time. I was just with someone who's just, who's just a lefty believer, you know, she's just a solid lefty believer. Um, and I couldn't even think at one point she started talking about, well, like you don't have to worry about the medicalization because, um, so many transgender children and adolescents are no longer medicalizing. And I just couldn't even think of a response to that because I, I couldn't get myself curious, which is what you're supposed to do. And I just thought it's really hard for me. I'm, I'm, you and I both, I think, have a lot of trans people in our lives, but we don't have a lot of ideologues in our, that we're close with. And I don't, I just don't even, I don't even know how to engage in conversation, even though I've taking workshops on it. And I often listen to opposing arguments and I consider opposing arguments when I write, but face to face, I just, I, I'm useless. So, I mean, once you're in that situation where you're with a group and you have a different belief system from the group, is there anything to do besides leave? Mm, that, yeah. You know, it was interesting because, well, one is you, one is that one thing I want to say there is no greater liberation to me than the than than the than thinking for yourself and speaking for yourself mm -hmm. it's terrifying yeah and it was terrifying and it and none of this came easy I mean there were days when I would be on my floor in this very room and I would be just gri gripped with fear about being a bad bad person and I but on the other side of that is just utter freedom you know to I remember walking down the street 
after I left that MFA program and I was just thinking about whatever. And I had a, some kind of heretical thought, probably had to do to something with gender or whatever. And I shuddered like a little, like it was almost like a little bit, like I almost caught myself a little bit, like to kind of catch the thought and stop it in its tracks. And then I realized, wait, I can think that. And, and it was, it was the moment that I realized, whoa, I was not for the past five years or whatever, I was not just not saying what I thought. I was not thinking what I thought. Mm-hmm. I was suppressing my own thoughts mm-hmm. about things because of the f- culture of fear to, to dissent from what I saw and the ideology that was being put forth. And it was like, wow, I, this was worth it. It was worth it because I can actually finally fucking think for myself, you know? And that's one thing. Two, do you have to leave? I remember it was around the time, I remember reading Barry's resignation, Barry Weiss's resignation letter from the New York Times. And it might've been in this letter and it might've not, but she did say at some point or wrote at some point, there comes a time when you have to leave that people say you stay and you fight, you stay and you fight, you stay and you dissent, you da da da. But it comes a time when you've just done what you can and you have to leave. And it was, it, that was how true it was for me that I thought I got to get out of here. This is, I can't. And when I knew that I had to leave academia, it was like a re- the, for the first time, a pinch of hope, I felt hope. I felt like this relief fled through me that I hadn't felt. And I can't even tell you how long when I said that out loud that I was like, I can't stay here anymore. There does come a time when you just have to leave um, because it's so, it's just so oppressive and it's, it's, it's really, I think just detrimental to, to the psyche. I don't know, but you know, when it comes to like, uh, fix, you know, what people say, like, do we fix institutions or do we create new ones? You know, I really don't know what the answer is. I mean, I'm, I do not feel hopeful at all about universities in this country. I've said it a bunch of times. I would never in a million years send my kids to certainly not the Ivy League as they are now. And most likely not to any elite institutions. I I honestly don't know where I would send a kid who was looking to do higher education. I don't know if I would kind of have a private tutor that would assign them readings and go through the great books and, you know, whatever. I have no idea. And maybe send them to a trade school. I'm not really sure. But I mean, I hear from my friends who teach at at colleges that cater to working class kids that this is not so much of an issue. Yeah, you're right. And I agree with you. I mean, because I didn't, I don't remember encountering anything like this at, at community college when I was there, although that was back in 2016, 20, no, 2015. Um, so yeah, I'm sure that that that's absolutely right, that there isn't, um, that it's not there as much. I mean, your story makes me think about maybe the the natural cycle of communities and institutions and all these things that start out good 
um, you know, your little hippie Jesus commune started out good and it got bigger and it got influenced and it got bad. And the organization you worked for that we're just not naming um, and many other, many other of the organizations that we on the left have admired the most spent decades doing work that was vitally important to a liberal democracy and then somehow became part of this culture of censorship and conformity in the name of social justice, which makes it hard to object to because, you know, who wants to object to racial equity and, and you know, inclusivity and and gender equality, which used to mean men and women having equal access to things. But it's it gets hard to object to because the language is still there from the old institutions, but the institutions are um, not advancing liberal causes anymore. And maybe that's just normal. Maybe everything runs its course, but it makes me wonder, you know, if we we're in this time where people have an, you know, a very, very low amount of trust in institutions and that leads to societal instability. And I know what, I know you and I have been just kind of communing with other people with similar concerns, not, not necessarily always the same ideas, not people who agree all the time, but I guess it's people with the same values. Um, but beyond that, that's so small, <laughs> you know, we write stuff and we talk to people and we um, take the tack of, of persuasion rather than public shaming. And we try to move forward, but we do that against the force of these institutions. And what do we need? That's, I'm not, I'm just asking the question that you just said you couldn't answer, but you know, are we, do we get new institutions? We have organizations like FIRE and FAIR. FAIR is a new institution. Is that, do we, you know what I, yeah, I what do we do? Oh, so for me, honestly, I think it starts at the individual. I think that my approach to maybe this is kind of like my approach to activism. You know, when I was a hairstylist and I saw it had to develop these relationships with people from all walks of life again, I was, you know, doing hair for pastoral counselors who I knew were, you know, very anti-gay and, you know, clients off the cuff would say, well, you know, most gay people are pedophiles, you know, or most pedophiles are gay or, you know, just for years having to, having to talk to people one-on-one -on -one, and it wasn't any kind of, oh, well, this is where you're wrong. I just got to know them and they got to know me. And I can't say that I changed their politics, but I do know that by getting to know me, a gay person who's this human being and all my imperfections and all this stuff did change their perspective about about things, about issues, and it broadened their their minds a little bit. And it broadened my mind. You know, it made me more, um, you know, sensitive to different people's misgivings or withholding about, you know, progress and progressive whatever. But I knew that it starts with individuals. And 
individual relationships and storytelling and getting to know people and not about enforcing an ideology and 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 shaming people into adopting some kind of dogma that you know and you're confident is the right dogma um one and then two it's people need to flip and speak their minds and say things out loud and stop saying oh i think the same way i can't say anything because of my job i can't say anything because i'm scared but just to dissent and it doesn't have to be oh i'm out as this fucking turf or i'm out as a da 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 you know i'm gc gender critical i'm this just you can just say hey i think that some of those kids you know or whatever if you if you do which i do think you know hey some of these kids that are gender non-conforming that we're medicalizing might just grow up to be fucking gay and lesbian and we are medicalizing uh homosexuality which is where these cross-sex hormones come from you know, years and years ago when we, they were, these drug manufacturers were distilling these drugs to these synthetic hormones. One of the primary things that they would use them for was to see if they could cure homosexuality. Yeah. And now we are medicalizing kids and some of these kids might, their gender dysphoria, if it's severe enough, it might persist and they might grow up to, to need to be medicalized, to be happy you know, they may identify as transsexual and they may live as the opposite sex, um, you know, identifying as the opposite sex and they might need cross-sex hormones to feel good and they might need surgeries. However, if you are like most thinking people who think, hey, aren't some of these kids just gay and lesbian? Or, hey, isn't this kind of non-binary, this kind of stuff, isn't it a little bit regressive? Doesn't that mean that to be a woman now means frilly dresses and makeup and, and to be like, you know, kind of a Dolly Parton-esque kind of individual or whatever, not that there's anything wrong with Dolly Parton. I love Dolly Parton, but you know, like, yeah, are we, aren't we making the categories of man and woman smaller? You know, aren't we, isn't this a little bit backwards or, Hey, you know, I don't know how I feel about males, uh, you know, body people and women's sports, isn't it? You know, like, if you're dissenting from this stuff, you have to say it because it's, you know, it's scary, you know, and, um, but I'm kind of, I'm at my wits end with the, the anonymous and the, and the people not speaking out because they're afraid of their, of the repercussions of it. Well, then I'm sorry, but if you are just privately dissenting, you're, you're not doing anything and you're kind of actually now, I mean, this might be harsh, but I think you're letting it happen. If you're not saying out loud, Hey, you know, if it's when it's relevant, I mean, you know, comes up in conversation. Actually, I don't think that that's necessarily the way to go. Oh, why? Well, this is why I think that, you know, until you do that, you're not, you're kind of a part of the problem. If you see this as a problem and I do see it as a problem, then you're kind of part of it. Well, if all the people who spoke up but said they were too afraid to, if they actually did speak up, there would be so many people speaking up, it would be impossible to ignore their voices. Right. But there is a huge cost, and especially for parents, you know, they're very concerned about custody with their children or relationship with their children. And so 
you know, all, all the stuff you were talking about, you know, with the relationship between childhood gender dysphoria and extreme gender nonconformity and later homosexuality, you know, it's, we should at least be able to talk about that. And I don't usually go out and say, this is right. And this is wrong. My message is we're not, we've decided that this whole other aspect of the story is just bigotry. I mean, the, the left, the press became affirming, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is not its job. And, yeah. and we need to create an environment where we can talk about these things. I don't know the answer. All I know is that most people in my demographic aren't getting the proper information and even asking about it is is risky and people would have to be committed to creating that environment. That would have to be the new instead of social justice the you know instead of those activist organizations with their bottom lines being committed to winning on their argument they they would have to all be committed to let's get all the information and allow different stakeholders to speak and i don't i don't know how that happens and you know i just was reading something that quoted well it quoted dave chappelle It quoted Dave Chappelle quoting the trans woman he was friends with who killed herself. And it said, I just looked it up. It said, um, like he had said, I don't understand you. And she said, I don't need you to understand me. I just need you to believe that I'm having a human experience. And I also hate to be so, um, uh, is it optimistic or you know, I hate to put my faith in that sentence, but I, I do think, you know, that these, that these organizations that emphasize common humanity are, are doing the right thing. I, they give me a lot of hope. I just, I guess that's a really hard thing to make money off of common humanity. Well, there, I guess you're, are you talking about the organizations that have been around that are operate, like that are pushing hot common humanity? No, I don't know how many are, I don't know how many are doing that. I think there are some organizations that have sprung up in response to this, not to the nastiness of culture war that are, that are saying we can actually look for solutions if we lead first with common humanity. Yes. And so that's the thing. And I agree with you, like, like fair.org, you know, like uh, th- that, that is an organization that t- is looking at common humanity. And I'm, and I'm optimistic about that too, because these the organizations that I have long admired, you know, ACLU or wherever, whoever, to me, some of them, maybe all of them, some of them are not pushing for a common humanity, but they're, they're looking for, for separating us um, and, and really, exploiting uh race, racial differences which i think perpetuates racism um and they're exploiting um uh just different uh, identity um differences and they're they're not emphasizing common humanity but they're actually proving more divisive and they're dividing us but i do want to say i kind of want to walk back a little because i said like you know people that aren't speaking up are kind of part of the problem and you mentioned like parents with kids and so i kind of have to walk that back a little bit because I do want to be sensitive to that because I can't imagine I don't have kids and I can't imagine navigating that and figuring out how 
not to trip the wire um, and alienate yourself from your kid. If your kid is, you know, identifying a certain way and you're not sure if, you know, you're thinking that they may have been, you know, influenced socially into that identification and, and so on. So yes, I've become um, frustrated that with that tact, but I am really sensitive to that and I emphasize. So I don't, I can't just make that blanket statement that people like that are just part of the problem. But I do wish that, I guess what I want to say is, is that on the other end of the fear and of the terror of actually speaking your mind and the first time you get that angry tweet or message or email or response you have it's 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 really like treating ocd it's it's uh exposure therapy you know mm-hmm. you expose yourself and it becomes less scary and then you survive it and it actually makes you stronger and you're like wow i'm free that didn't kill me you did not kill me by saying i was a horrible transphobe racist whatever because i know who i am i know what i am and what i'm not and, and, and it also opens you up to meeting other people. Like I never would have met you who I so much admire and mm-hmm. people, yeah. you know, other people in our little cohort, but other people, I, I just, it, you find people who, um, you know, I don't know, maybe they affirm, we affirm each other <laughs> in our heresy, you know, but yeah. And I, I want to say too, really quickly, you were talking about, you know, this uh, gays and lesbians and, you know, maybe people will grow up to be gay or lesbian. What really just really makes me angry about these organizations, you know, LGBT organizations, I have not heard one activist or anybody answer to these concerns of gays and lesbians who say, aren't we transing gay kids? Aren't we metalizing homosexuality? In some of these cases, perhaps most of them, isn't it a possibility? How can you be so confident that you can discern who's going to grow up to be gay and lesbian and who's going to grow up to be transsexual? What gives you that confidence? Nobody answers to it. Nothing. None of the leaders of the organizations, nobody, all they do is, is say, oh, cis gays this and, and oh, transphobes and bigots and, or it's just dead, it's radio silence. And that just, it really angers me because I think that that's a pretty freaking reasonable criticism or question to have. I don't think that there's anything weird about that. And I think that that is, if you're so confident that you can just distinguish, then tell me what your method is. I would really, really love to know. Yeah. Well, we got to create that environment where we're allowed to ask questions and where people feel like they can say I don't know in response but they they can't say that because they'll risk um giving up all the all their power and and well you'll your book will create that environment Ben when's your when's your book coming out cis so white gay I think it's going to be next year I'm 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 imagining cuz my manuscripts do early next year and so in January so just depending on what the, the editing process is and the publication process, this is my first book. So we'll see. Um, I'm thinking it's going to be next year. Well, 
It's going to be fantastic. And Ben Appel, thank you very, very much for talking with me. Thank you, Lisa.